The following program's views, claims, or representations may not reflect those of AM 1420 The Answer or Salem Media Group. Welcome to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. And now, here's your host, Nick Phillips. Good evening, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another edition of The Advocate. Thank you again. We're still struggling through winter here. It's sort of a cold, gray, snowy, dark, windy night So here in Cleveland. Hope you had a great week last week and looking forward to another great week uh, coming up. You know, in our show tonight in the second half, we're going to be talking to uh, a Dr. Drury Sherrod, who is a jury jury consultant, and he's going to be talking to us about uh, jury trials and what's going on with jury trials. So if you have been a juror or will be a juror or you're a lawyer or someone who has to go to a jury trial, you'll want to stay tuned and listen to us talking about jury trials but in the first half, we're going to be talking uh, about uh, a problem that we have been seeing here in Ohio and in the rest of the country, and that is the, the problem with opioids. You know, years ago, it seemed like only people living in the worst parts of big urban centers were dealing with heroin and opioids and having problems. But it is spread around as such a major problem uh, with regard to overdosing and uh, the police and uh, EMTs carrying Narcan around, trying to save lives and... Uh, uh, laws being changed to punish uh, those people who are involved with uh, drugs. Uh, but we're going to talk about something a little different, maybe another approach on how to handle the opioid problem. And with us tonight, we have Mr. Roy uh, Poylan. Is it uh, Roy? Thank you for joining us tonight. Hi, Nick. How are you? Hey, did I pronounce your name right, Poylan? I think you did a fine job, Poyan. It's French. Poyan. Oh, oui, monsieur. <laughs> Merci. <laughs> so, Poyan. Uh, well, very good. Uh, well, tell us a little bit about who you are, your background in sure. dealing with helping out with opioid problems and the name of your organization. Thanks. Um, the name of the organization is Families Impacted by Opioids. Families is spelled I-E-S. And its purpose is to educate families on their journey with substance use disorder. Um, We're going about that by educating the families on the aspects of it, and we've broken down their journey, and we're also going to help the families get organized so that they know what they're doing, when they're doing it, and what they'll need in order to get it done. And then we're also helping the families to get networked. So educating, organizing, and networking families on the journey with substance use disorder is our primary focus. Well, you know, after talking to legislators and talking to law enforcement people, uh, you know, the traditional uh, approach to people who are uh, abusing opioids, where they're using it not in a prescribed medical manner, but they're abusing it and putting their lives at risk and uh, exchanging drugs and putting other people's lives at risk, we've always seemed to be talking about uh, legislation to uh, either do something with regard to incarceration or to somehow try to administratively handle this through the government, uh, or on the other hand, handle and direct everything toward the individual who has the problem. Your, your group is looking at almost uh, like an AA situation that people have with alcohol. Uh, if you have someone who is around you with the problem, you're going to give them coaching on, on how to uh, basically deal with the problem and hopefully eliminate the problem. Is, is that my takeaway on that? Is that proper? That's right, Nick. We're running into a new evolution of how we're needing to address this, uh, this epidemic. It is a disease, I want to say, starting out. Um, it is a disease of the brain, and I think that that's been, um, through empirical studies, well, well uh, categorized. So if we're really going to look at this as a brain disease in the same way that we look at hypertension as a chronic disease, then there are certain structures that our communities and medical and support and payers have established in helping people with the actual care of a loved one in their family system, and that way they can participate more proactively. We're not finding that to necessarily be the same education level for substance use disorder as a brain disease, as a chronic disease. Um, What we do see is we're doing a great job, and we've got some really high-caliber people that are involved in the opioid and addressing uh, treatments and therapies and support services. It's just outstanding. We should be very pleased with uh, the way that our communities have responded to this. However, there is a kind of a break-off point 
kind of refer to it as the abacus timeline. If you were to think of an abacus and you're moving the beads across in order to add it up, their care is cumulative. And although we do see relapse is a commonly used word um, as a failure, we're identifying that that's not the case. A relapse is actually a situation just like in a chronic disease where therapies need to be adjusted. So we learn something from a relapse. Um, we do find that there are statistical uh, data collection points that are becoming very useful now for us to make decisions about mm-hmm. where should we put money, where should we put structure. But in chronic disease management, if we actually take the point in which the treatment centers stop their care and ask the person who is in substance use disorder to then seek out a 12-step program, if they can reach the five-year mark, the likelihood of them having relapse drops to 15%. Nick, you and I are at 15%. Our listeners are about at 15%. So that's not a guarantee. No, There are no guarantees. But this is a long-term, lifelong chronic disease. And as the industry starts to become more mature, although we've been doing this for some time now, we need to include the family, we need to educate the family, and we need to empower the family. And we also need to go to those resources, what we call support structures. That's the city, that's the schools, and that's the church. These are the three structures that families typically rely on for their family and supporting them and raising their children and living their lives. So this conference not only takes the 12 critical key issues that they're going to address and educates them on those issues, but it also invites in the mayors from across Northeast Ohio in order to receive a review of best practices done by other cities in case when their program is being implemented, they would like to maybe augment it a little from something that they saw. We're doing the exact same thing with the superintendents of schools. We have a program that's being introduced by Bay City Schools, Sean McAndrews, and their results are literally off the charts. They're using a program called Preventure. Nick, this has a 90% success rate in identifying the coping skills, the weaknesses of our middle school student bodies. That means bohemia, suicide, drug addiction. So if we're able to identify a student and help them by them volunteering Mm -hmm. to get involved in a peer-to-peer group meeting, which they are having great reception with over at Bay Village, then we can do something for that child in building up their coping skills. Isn't that something that we've always said we want from the schools? Oh, that's all. It's terrific because it's looking mm-hmm. at going out one layer out from the actual exactly. person with the drugs. Or exactly. We call them the drug victim. But let's right. go back for a moment and, and look at the term disease because uh, yeah, I, we need good. to know more about that because... I think when we start uh, out from looking at uh, people who are laying in a car or on the street with an overdose, Mm -hmm. uh, nobody first, I don't think, thinks that these people are suffering from a disease like tuberculosis or cancer or something. But Mm -hmm. it looks like they're probably recreational drug users taking this voluntarily for fun. Yeah, that's an ignorance. I'm sorry. No, and that, that's why we have to like break mm-hmm. down the statistics to figure out what's going on. Because we do hear that a lot of people get into opioid addiction due to the habit-forming nature of taking opioids, many times started by medical necessity. If you right. are post-operative, you had an operation for like uh-huh. a knee replacement or something, yeah. that uh, you're given these um, the, the pills, and pretty soon you slip into a situation where, where you have to have them and then right. your doctor cuts you off. Then where do you get them? <laughs> and are, are, so we, when we talk about a disease, do we actually have some organic changes in the brain that occur that then drives you to have, have more opioids? Actually, that's, that is correct. Scientifically proven through PET scans and scans of the brain, we've been, it, it's, it's pretty well founded that uh, dopamine is the, the neuronal firing that takes place in the axiom going down the neuronal channel to the receptor site, which they call the synapse. And when it crosses over that barrier, it reaches a receptor. If heroin is sitting on that receptor site, it cannot continue the normal process. Basically, dopamine is our 
euphoric feeling that we're actually in like 80 times more so experiencing with heroin. So what the brain says is, if you're not going to use me, I'm not going to produce. And this is a very boiled, watered down example of what's taking place. But I think we need to understand that only takes about four times doing these drugs, and then it, or it more. But does four create, times you can be there. I think we and need with that more. In mind, your your mind now rewires itself. I think so. We're going to take a short break. We're talking sure. to Roy Poyan, and he's with the families impacted by opioids. Uh, and we're going to come back talking about a conference they're holding back uh, coming up in May. Don't go away. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on the Advocate on WHK. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. Don't go away. Children, the product of a married couple who were once in love. Unfortunately, sometimes the marriage does not work and parents must get divorced. This is traumatic for the children as well as for the adults. The law firm of Phillips and Millie offers advice and representation in family law matters. Remember, your children are entitled to the utmost consideration when mom and dad have to part. Phillips and Millie, your local law firm on the west side of Middleburg Heights. Telephone 440-243-2800. Hi, I'm Pat Lamb. Select Insurance Services is a family-run business and your personal shopper for auto, home, and business insurance. Plus, I'm Dave Ramsey's endorsed local provider. I think you'll agree, insurance is confusing, but at the same time, it's very important to your financial security. We believe insurance should be secured through a professional. Why? Because one wrong click in the do-it-yourself plan could cost you everything. Our approach stands out because we ask the right questions, listen to your personal situation, and share our knowledge to close potential coverage gaps. This is an experience a do-it-yourself plan can't provide. Did you know there could be a coverage gap when you drive someone else's car? So call us today, 440-237-8555, or check us out at selectinsservice.com. 440-237-8555, or selectinsservice.com. Hi, this is Nick Phillips, host of The Advocate. Pat Lamb and Select Insurance have been my insurance agents for years. Wonderful to work with and never a hassle. Call Pat Lamb at Select Insurance for your insurance how's your back every day thousands of people suffer with unrelenting back pain that takes time from their normal life dr patrick mccluskey and his staff at the timber ridge neck and back pain clinic provide the helping hands to relieve those nagging pains located in north royalton at sprague and york roads schedule an appointment today with the timber ridge neck and back pain clinic by calling 440-884-0083 for an appointment that's 440-884-0083 just imagine being neck and back pain free More than just a dentist, Dr. Carl Hedgie provides dental treatments for occlusions, TMJ problems, and for aesthetic rehabilitation. In dental practice for over 30 years, Dr. Hedgie has provided state-of-the-art dental treatment for all of his patients. Dr. Carl Hedgie is skilled at treating and resolving complicated dental problems. Located across from the North Royalton High School, call Dr. Hedgie's office for an appointment or visit his website at drhedgie.com. That's Dr. Carl Hedgie, H-E-G-Y-I at 440-237-3338 for the very best in dental care. You didn't plan it this way. You spent your entire life being careful, protecting your body and staying healthy when the carelessness of another changes your life forever. You need to know what's expected of you to prove your claim. You further have been changed forever. Know it's up to you to make your case. The lawyers at Phillips and Millie together have over 80 years of experience. If you have a case or think you may, call the law firm of Phillips and Millie at 440-243-2800. Please call The Advocate with your questions or comments at News Talk 1420 WHK at 888-281-1110. That's 888-281-1110 or locally 216-901-0945. And now here's your host, Nick Phillips. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. Uh, Tonight we're talking about opioid abuse and uh, the, the damages it's causing uh, to not only humans directly, but to their families and friends and their co-workers, uh, if they can hold a job. And uh, answering the question tonight of what can we do about it, uh, you know, all the, the laws putting people into prison and trying to keep the drugs off the street uh, still needs something more. And uh, that something more is basically having some type of intervention program and uh, some type of protocol that one can follow. 
We're talking tonight to uh, Roy Poyan, uh, who is with the uh, the group uh, Families Impacted by Opioids. Roy, thank you again for joining us tonight. Thank you, Nick. You know, we, we're, uh, oh, go ahead. And then I, I want to get into the conference you're going to be having. Happy to do so. Uh, first, what I'd like to do is start out by telling uh, our listening audience that if you are a family dealing with this journey, um, don't don't let this disease, because it is a disease, create a stigma for you. Um, we all understand what you're going through, is, is my voice to you, and it's the voice coming from everyone. And we want you to have empowerment and confidence to step up and say, you know, we're not, gonna, we're not going to take this line down. This is a disease, and we're going to fight it like we fight anything else. And we're going to fight it with education. And that's the purpose of this conference that's coming up. We've identified 12 key issues categorically that include every aspect of what this family is going to experience. All of their questions can be addressed. There, Nick, there's no question that a family can bring to this conference mm-hmm. and not get a direct answer to. This is incredible. Give, give us an so, idea of what, what these 12 are like, if you can give us a thank sample. You. Yeah. Uh, issue number one is enabling and disabling. How do we know where the, where the boundaries are? When am I enabling? And how can I... How can I respond to things, you know, in real time in such a way that I don't disable the good therapy that they've received from the treatment centers so that it's more or less a continuation of growth for the one that I'm caring about. Addiction behavior, Rosary Hall is going to explain that to us from St. Vincent. They do an outstanding job down there. And all of our speakers are hand-picked, by the way. We've got Family Intervention by Ohio Guidestone. They're going to guide us and in this breakout session in the afternoons, we have seven, 16 breakout sessions, 20 speakers, and they're going to guide us through, uh, well, I don't want to get too technical, but it's Petrowski and DeClemente's um, five stages of change, which are very important, very standardized. But we all need to have an understanding. When a person is sitting there saying, I don't really feel I have a problem, there's an actual stage that's identified. And there's a thing called motivational interviewing, which the family can learn on how to get them to move to contemplation. Well, maybe there's something I need to do about it. And then from contemplation to preparation, there's a, actually a motivational interviewing, very simply applied, that can help this person in a light conversation within the family. So these are the types of ways that we can empower when we think of an intervention, when we think of a hotel room with a professional and everybody's kind of gathering around. And I'm not saying that that's not successful, because it is very successful. But this is another way that the family can empower itself. The police show up at the door. What should we do? This is issue number four. Well, you could have filled out a missing persons report ahead of time and given them that sheet of paper, which tells them everything about where your child hangs out, who he hangs out with. That allows them to catch up. The police are your friend. It's an intervention. And then by incorporating yourself and teaming with them, you can get ready for the next stage because this is a journey. The next stage is probably going to be something where you're going back into the area of medical. So it could be that your loved one has had a Narcan event and revived. You're both down at the ER. By the way, were you ready for that? Because when you walked into the ER, the family, the finance person pulled you out of the exam room in order to find out how you're going to pay for the bill. Well, once again, you could have had a sheet of paper with all that information on and said, here, if there's anything on here that you need, I'll be surprised. I'm going to stay with my daughter in the exam room. These are just little things that we can empower ourselves with, but they're not so little because we get into much greater detail of what types of assessments are done to gauge severity, what type of things are done in a treatment center, what type of things aren't done in a treatment center. I bet you and I know nothing about really what goes on in a treatment center. We should. We know what goes on in a hospital. It's just this is so new to us as a culture. So families impacted by opioids is taking 20 very professional speakers, all extremely qualified to explain that particular issue that they are actually presenting on to help the family understand, here's what it is, here's how it's going to impact you, here's how you can get prepared, and here's who to help you. Every issue follows that format. No speaker is allowed to give statistics, and unfortunately at this particular event, it's not really helpful, but nobody's going to give personal stories. The families are going to come to this conference because they want solutions, and they deserve solutions. They are the statistic. They don't need to have somebody tell them that there's a county epidemic going on, and here's what the data looks like. That's the past. They're living in the present, and they want to get ready for what's coming next. And it's our job as a community and society to sit there and say, 
we know exactly what you're going to experience, but up to now we weren't willing to tell you, and now we are. Nick, if you include the family in a family multidimensional therapy, which means that the children and the, the parent while Jack's in treatment, if they go to therapy, you decrease relapse by 59%. Those are the kind of numbers we need to start putting on the board. So what we're saying is because we include the family, we get these better results? Absolutely. It's proven. Well, all that's true. And, and you know, with yeah. there being so many overdoses and deaths, that result from that. Uh, yeah, you know, one, those once, aren't happening in the treatment center. They're happening after the After that. Center. But you know what yeah. happens is that uh, when the, the game is over when someone dies, and you have to do oh, all yeah. you can possibly Terrible. do to stop that from happening and, and prevent that. Well, your conference is going to be May 4th uh, of this Thank year. You. And uh-huh. uh, it's the, going to be the Holiday Inn, holiday in, in, uh, on Rockside and Independence. And mm-hmm. what, what time does it start? It starts at 8 and it ends at 4. It starts with the keynote speaker, Jim Joyner, who is an incredible um, person. And he, he's been in this, uh, doing this work for over 40 years. Jim, like nobody else can, will explain to the families exactly what they need to hear. So it's a great way to start the conference. But then we're also moving into some other speakers. We're going to have all 12 issues on stage during the grand session, 500 seats and the stage. And they're going to review the obstacles. So in the very first part of the meeting, the families will see what problems are we going to have to address. And then they spend the afternoon going to breakout sessions learning how do we solve those problems. Well, this is a, this is a big thing. This is a heavy-duty program mm-hmm. that uh, yeah. is not a fly-by-night simple thing. Uh, oh, no. you're, you have Congressman James Renacci is going to be there. I do, yeah. He's uh, going to be your moderator. James Renacci is going to, he's going to moderate a panel discussion of best practices. There's going to be five best practices on stage. The mayors are coming in with their chief of police and the county sheriffs are coming in, and they're all going to be able to review what are the best practices in this area for these cities to, there's 150 seats for them. And we're also doing the same thing in terms of introducing preventure and improbable players is a new theater company that gives a play now, these are, um, these are professional actors who they themselves have been addicts. They've impacted, Dick, the lives of 1.2 million students throughout New Hampshire, Rhode Island, and Massachusetts. And we're so fortunate to have them here. I want the superintendents to see this play. So Karen Snyder has agreed to actually do the play in one of the breakout rooms so that the superintendents, middle school, and principals get a chance to see that. But they'll also get to see what Sean has to say about preventure, which has been proven out in the Netherlands, Canada, and Australia. Well, you know, uh, why I asked you to be on, because uh, I so appreciate what you're doing, and I'm, I'm glad mm-hmm. you're on the air, is because just in casual conversations I have with people, uh, more than ever, somebody knows somebody who yeah. is, has some type of opioid addiction, no matter how it started, uh, and the heartache, and the unfortunate deaths that occur uh, mm-hmm. so that for our listeners tonight, if you don't have any direct problems with opioids or family members, chances are if you talk around your group, you probably ah, will find that. somebody who knows somebody and mm-hmm. should encourage them. This sounds like it's going to be uh, quite an interesting conference on May uh, 4th that yeah. will uh, answer a lot of questions. And there'll be a pre-registration quest- is open. I encourage all the listeners right now to pick up the phone and call the people they know and say, get on Eventbrite, type in May 4th, Cleveland. It, the title of the show is Addiction and Family Empowerment. It's at the Holiday Inn. It'll be real easy to find. And just you just enter your email address, and that comes to me, and then I can begin to send you a welcome packet, and I can begin the education. Once again, Nick, enough's enough with this disease. Okay, we, we've, we've stood down long enough, and the treatment centers and everybody, the professionals, have greatly supported us. It's now time for us to roll up our sleeves. We've suffered through this as families, but now it's time to get empowered. And the only way we're going to do that is through education. Well, Empowerment equals responsibility, and the mm-hmm. responsibility is in the family. Well, tremendous effort on your part, and I, I know oh, that it's, it's filling a puzzle piece. We get the whole community to work together to do this. And looking at it even as a bigger picture, this basically, if we clean up these situations, we clean up our, our job force, and our workforce, yes. and we make a better economy and a better community. So it's all part of the big puzzle. So we're so appreciative of what you're doing. 
Thanks, Nick. Have a great night. Thank you so much. We'll be back after these words. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. Don't go away. Pat Lamb. Select Insurance Services is a family-run business and your personal shopper for auto, home, and business insurance. Plus, I'm Dave Ramsey's endorsed local provider. I think you'll agree, insurance is confusing, but at the same time, it's very important to your financial security. We believe insurance should be secured through a professional. Why? Because one wrong click in the do-it-yourself plan could cost you everything. Our approach stands out because we ask the right questions, listen to your personal situation, and share our knowledge to close potential coverage gaps. This is an experience a do-it-yourself plan can't provide. Did you know there could be a coverage gap when you drive someone else's car? So call us today, 440-237-8555, or check us out at selectinsservice.com. 440-237-8555, or selectinsservice.com. Hi, this is Nick Phillips, host of The Advocate. Pat Lamb and Select Insurance have been my insurance agents for years. Wonderful to work with and never a hassle. Call Pat Lamb at Select Insurance for your insurance needs. How's your back? Every day, thousands of people suffer with unrelenting back pain that takes time from their normal life. Dr. Patrick McCluskey and his staff at the Timber Ridge Neck and Back Pain Clinic provide the helping hands to relieve those nagging pains. Located in North Royalton at Sprague and York Roads, schedule an appointment today with the Timber Ridge Neck and Back Pain Clinic by calling 440-884-0083 for an appointment. That's 440-884-0083. Just imagine being neck and back pain free. You didn't plan it this way. You spent your entire life being careful, protecting your body and staying healthy when the carelessness of another changes your life forever. You need to know what's expected of you to prove your claim. You further have been changed forever. Know it's up to you to make your case. The lawyers at Phillips and Millie together have over 80 years of experience. If you have a case or think you may, call the law firm of Phillips and Millie at 440-243-2800. Children, the product of a married couple who were once in love. Unfortunately, sometimes the marriage does not work and parents must get divorced. This is traumatic for the children as well as for the adults. The law firm of Phillips and Millie offers advice and representation in family law matters. Remember, your children are entitled to the utmost consideration when mom and dad have to part. Phillips and Millie, your local law firm on the west side of Middleburg Heights. Telephone 440-243-2800. More than just a dentist, Dr. Carl Hedgie provides dental treatments for occlusions, TMJ problems, and for aesthetic rehabilitation. In dental practice for over 30 years, Dr. Hedgie has provided state-of-the-art dental treatment for all of his patients. Dr. Carl Hedgie is skilled at treating and resolving complicated dental problems. Located across from the North Royalton High School, call Dr. Hedgie's office for an appointment or visit his website at drhedgie.com. That's Dr. Carl Hedgie, H-E-G-Y-I at 440-237-3338 for the very best in dental care. Welcome back Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. If you've ever been called for jury duty or you had a case before a court and had to face a jury, you'll know that uh, jury trials are, are something of an event. And we're going to talk to an expert on jury trials. We're talking about The Jury Crisis, which is a new book by Jury Sherrod. Mr. Sherrod, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. I'm happy to be here. Yes, where are you calling from tonight? I'm in Pasadena, California. Oh, very good. Uh, we just saw your beautiful city during the Rose Bowl Parade. But, uh, that, that it is being, a beautiful city. That, that being said, we're up here in Cleveland, Ohio, the land of ice and snow, so... You're, uh, you're much. I've been uh, at the Rock and Roll Museum before. Good, good. Well, that that's a wonderful place. But you know, getting down to business, um, you're a jury consultant, and you wrote a book called The Jury Crisis. Uh, I'm a trial lawyer, and before the interview, we talked a little bit about about that. Your role as a trial consultant. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? 
Yeah, I'm actually a social psychologist. I have a PhD in psychology, taught psychology, written a lot of articles in a textbook, and in this most recent book on um, the jury crisis. And what jury consultants do are we are hired by attorneys when there's a big case, usually high damages or major consequences at stake. And the goal is to try the, essentially to try the case in advance in a mini version with jurors hired from the, from the venue who match the real venue, who, who would look like the faces you would see on a real jury trial. The whole thing is reenacted with lawyers and uh, evidence presented on both sides. And the result of the, this, these analyses are to develop um, trial strategies that are persuasive. We often, to do that, we often rewrite the opening statements into narrative form. We also can develop a verdict uh, reliably tested uh, of what ear questions that predict verdict. And then we also often do post-trial jury interviews. So whereas most jury deliberations are never penetrated because they're sacrosanct, there's no clerk taking down notes or anything. I have often, I've just talked to scores and scores of jurors on the phone about their experience of having been a jury when, when they decided in a case to, uh, to go one side or the other and why. Well, on that particular point, what do you find? When do jurors make their decision uh, as a general rule? It's often hard for lawyers especially to accept, but there's pretty good research that most jurors begin making up their mind during early in the opening statements. And having made up their mind, they then use, they then use that to uh, determine what they attend to during the cases in chief, what evidence they focus on. It affects what evidence they recall, what evidence they don't recall. And it's partially because the jurors do this because this is basically what the brain evolved to do, to leap to narrative conclusions instead of doing a slow, objective, rational analysis of evidence. We survived by leaping to conclusions, acting intuitively and instinctually and telling stories. Well, and we can't help mm -hmm. but do that in jury trials. And, and that's uh, human nature, I would imagine, that it, it's hard to, it hard to combat that. Uh, I, I've been doing jury trials for many years, and... Uh, it, it's always a mystery. I remember years ago when I was starting out doing jury trials, I used to, uh, I think probably part of being, uh, the, the function of being a young attorney, I, I felt I would know what a jury is going to do. Uh, but now it's not so clear. It, it's not really clear what the jury is going to do. It depends on the makeup of the jury, how they're feeling that day, how the judge is feeling that day, how all the witnesses are going to come across, whether they'll come across the same way as they told you they're going to come across. And uh, the the outcome. There are in our. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say the outcome is so unpredictable. In your experiences, is, is there some way to bring that together and make it more predictable? Well, it is unpredictable, and that's why jury trials are vanishing. Um, there's there's just staggering numbers there that there's only um, less than a half a percent of all the civil trials filed in a year reach a jury. That's less than one half of one percent. Just a couple of decades ago, it was 20 percent, 25 percent. And for criminal trials, it's less than one percent. So basically, less than a half percent of criminal trials and less, less than one percent of criminal trials and a half percent of civil trials ever reach a jury. That's been called the, the banishing jury. We are seeing, we're maybe seeing the death of trial by jury in America. Well, I, I can see that... Uh happening in a sense because we've been seeing more mediations and uh, some arbitrations. But, uh, yeah, cases very rarely get to the courtroom. Uh, at, at one point I was, uh, I thought it would be a neat thing to just have uh, a team of lawyers try a simple case in front of a sample jury in the courthouse as part of a bar experiment and then go right across the hall and do the same trial again in front of another jury and watch how they do it differently. It's a great experiment. Which, which we have done uh, some post-trial jury interviews <clears throat> where, in, in one case, there were this, the same, almost this, the same evidence was involved in two different cases. The same lawyers, the same witnesses, um, same allegations, same suffering consequences. The only difference was that, two, that each plaintiff was different, and it was tried in a different part of the country. But in one case, the jurors favored, voted in favor of the company, a pharmaceutical manufacturer, and the other in favor of the individual. And while the, the both sides put on detailed science cases lasting probably a week to ten days. The science was over the head of the jurors. They just couldn't recall it. As one juror told me on the phone, he said, I'm not Einstein. I'm as blue collar as you can get. All the science just went over my head. So that's a problem. That's one of the reasons that um, lawyers and judges, especially lawyers, seem to distrust juries. They think juries can't understand cases. But it turns out that um, 
if we turn it over to experts, which would be judges, mediators, arbitrators, they bring their own biases. Also, those biases are, uh, biases are all vested in a single person who's going to be telling a single story about the facts, whereas in a jury, you're going to have six to 12 people, ideally representing different segments of the community, talking together, spreading the risk, trying to hammer out a community standard decision. Yeah, have you seen any examples of a blend of having a judge handle most issues and a jury, maybe a special jury, just handling a single issue? Uh, an, an area I would think of... I think it's more Europe. Uh-huh. What, what happens in Europe? In Europe, I think major cases with major charges, uh, major penalty, major uh, criminal cases and huge penalty on jury trials sometimes go to judges. I mean, sometimes go to, go to juries, but generally they go to judges. And, uh, well, I'm thinking, like, in medical cases here uh, where maybe a jury could be impaneled just to consider the damages issue, something that's maybe something that's based on common experience rather than highly technical scientific data and competing peer review articles and experts and that kind of thing. I, I could understand how people can get lost in that. Well, interesting, we were hired by a client to do... Um to, to do a comparison of jurors versus experts on an overcharging case and a very complicated manufacturing dispute. And the manufacturer is claiming that its part suppliers had been overcharging for 10 years. So we hired a group of um, arbitrators who heard the same evidence and that a group of juries, the jury heard. They reached different conclusions. The arbitrators accepted the fact that the evidence was more or less unclear and unpersuasive, but it was similar to lots of other cases they had handled, so they accepted that they would just trust the evidence. Whereas the jurors said they couldn't understand the evidence, but what, the way they reasoned it was a simple story. If this major sophisticated company had been, had been being overcharged for 10 years, it's basically their own fault, because why wouldn't they have realized what was going on? Now, when, when you approach a case like that, you, you mentioned you guys do some fantastic things to help lawyers. Uh, for example, uh, setting up uh, mock juries, uh, writing opening statements. How much of this is based on the law, and how much is based on, say, psychology? Well, by the time it comes to us, the lawyers have done all the discovery. They've filed all the motions. They've sought summary judgments, and they have to face a jury. So at that point, it becomes much more of a psychological issue than a legal issue. And I think, in fact, that's the problem, that the, um, the lawyers, especially defense lawyers, haven't learned how to... Uh, talk to a juror. They still talk to the jurors when they're talking to law school professors. For example, we often find that when lawyers write opening statements, it's a, list, a yellow pad list of, say, 100 items, and they just check them off, sort of out of order, out of chronological order, out of any kind of narrative order. There's no story. There's no beginning, middle, and end. We transform those into a narrative, usually five themes, beginning, middle, end, that, a narrative that organizes the evidence. So we don't ignore the evidence. We just organize it in a way that it's comprehensible. And in doing that, you also set up a series of mental file folders. So the jurors, the jurors just have to recall the overall narrative, and then they can they can uh, fill it with the, with the, uh, the evidence from these file folders we've established in their brains. Uh, it sounds like the way the human mind works. That's the best way to do this. We're talking to Drew Sherrod, uh, who is a jury consultant and a Ph.D. in psychology, and he has a book called The Jury Crisis. Uh, it's, it's a great book uh, if you're planning on being a juror or you have a trial or you're a lawyer or working in that system. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back with uh, Drew Sherrod to talk more about jury trials and the crisis with regard to jury trials here in the United States. Don't go away. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on The Advocate. We'll be back after these words. More than just a dentist, Dr. Carl Hedgie provides dental treatments for occlusions, TMJ problems, and for aesthetic rehabilitation. In dental practice for over 30 years, Dr. Hedgie has provided state-of-the-art dental treatment for all of his patients. Dr. Carl Hedgie is skilled at treating and resolving complicated dental problems. Located across from the North Royalton High School, call Dr. Hedgie's office for an appointment or visit his website at drhedgie.com. That's Dr. Carl Hedgie, H-E-G-Y-I at 440-237-3338 for the very best in dental care. 
Hi, I'm Pat Lamb. Select Insurance Services is a family-run business and your personal shopper for auto, home, and business insurance. Plus, I'm Dave Ramsey's endorsed local provider. I think you'll agree, insurance is confusing, but at the same time, it's very important to your financial security. We believe insurance should be secured through a professional. Why? Because one wrong click in the do-it-yourself plan could cost you everything. Our approach stands out because we ask the right questions, listen to your personal situation, and share our knowledge to close potential coverage gaps. This is an experience a do-it-yourself plan can't provide. Did you know there could be a coverage gap when you drive someone else's car? So call us today, 440-237-8555, or check us out at selectinsservice.com. 440-237-8555, or selectinsservice.com. Hi, this is Nick Phillips, host of The Advocate. Pat Lamb and Select Insurance have been my insurance agents for years. Wonderful to work with and never a hassle. Call Pat Lamb at Select Insurance for your insurance needs. Our military service members volunteer to protect us in the most dangerous places around the world. They step up. And when they are severely ill or injured, returning to their families is only the beginning of their long road home. Wounded Warrior Project provides these brave men and women whatever they need to continue their fight for independence at no cost for life. So now it's time for a grateful nation to step up. Join us at findwwp.org. How's your back? Every day, thousands of people suffer with unrelenting back pain that takes time from their normal life. Dr. Patrick McCluskey and his staff at the Timber Ridge Neck and Back Pain Clinic provide the helping hands to relieve those nagging pains. Located in North Royalton at Sprague and York Roads, schedule an appointment today with the Timber Ridge Neck and Back Pain Clinic by calling 440-884-0083 for an appointment. That's 440-884-0083. Just imagine being neck and back pain free. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with our final segment of The Advocate for tonight. We're talking about jury trials and the validity of having juries in our jury system uh, here in the United States and what's been happening over the past uh, decades concerning fewer and fewer jury trials. With us tonight, we have Drury Sherrod, who is an expert on uh, juries. He's a consultant and a Ph.D. in psychology. And uh, Drew, thank you for joining us. Thank you. I'm enjoying the conversation. Yeah, it's it's a it's an interesting topic. Uh, as a lawyer, I, I love jury trials because it gives us the time to actually talk to normal people. And uh, sometimes I tell clients, <coughs> if you want to know what your jury is going to look like, go to your local shopping mall and just randomly pick out the first uh, first people you see. They're likely what kind of people will be on your jury. Mm-hmm. And uh, and with that. Uh, we all don't hire jury consultants uh, to, to do cases other than very large cases where the uh, economic issues of the case justify the expense because what you do is expensive. It's time-consuming. requires a lot of, lot of input. Uh, how, any thoughts you most have? Most lawyers. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, you are going to say most lawyers. No, I was going to say expensive for lawyers and uh, and and the uh, consultants as well. Especially it's a, the whole trial is enacted with, oh, say two star lawyers, a lot of assistant lawyers, um, a lot of witnesses, um, videos. The 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 mock trials can be quite elaborate productions. Of course. Well, uh, doing a trial is uh, like um, there's a similarity to an iceberg. Uh, the very tip of the iceberg is what you see in the courtroom. And everything below the surface is what goes on for years, getting these cases ready for trial. Right. And uh, when when I talk to business people about litigation, they're facing a controversy. If, if it's not a multi-million dollar, it's going to put them out of business and ruin them kind of a litigation. Most litigation is very time-consuming, a lot more expensive than they would think, and is sort of the equivalent of having a really? cancer uh, t- that a human would have. So the yeah, settlement is always a, is a good thing. Is there any advice that... Um, yeah, we might talk about... Go ahead. I was going to say we might talk about jury selection because you haven't touched sure. on that yet. Well, yeah, tell me about jury selection. That, that's a mystery, and that's what many movies are made of uh, for TV. Tell me. Well, it is. Tell, tell me about jury uh, selection. And, and Dr. Bull, for example, you've seen the TV show. Yeah, people love that show. <laughs> and, and they, they have... Uh, I was called for jury duty once, and the... Uh-huh. The prosecuting attorney um, 
in her version of the voir dire, she asked the same question to many people. She said, do you promise me you'll keep an open mind, not make up your mind till you've heard all the evidence? And this was asked over and over. And then um, few, few questions are asked about specific attitudes. Yet the research is really very, very clear that what um, the kind of voir dire question that best predicts the juror's verdict is ask them about um, values, lifestyle, uh, lifestyle experiences, attitudes, and values that directly relate and mimic the kind of issue that's going on in the jury trial. And different questions would be relevant for different strata of the, the population. So, for example, the kind of questions that might predict a plaintiff-oriented versus a defense-oriented, say, older, rich, white men are different from the questions that would predict plaintiff or defense orientation for young, poor, minority female. And you can almost rank it as a gender and ethnicity and, um, and get several cells and have different predictive questions. So th that takes a, an extensive amount of research to see what kind of questions best predict verdict as a function of gender and ethnicity. Well, well, and when you, if, when yeah, you do ahead. that in such a fine-grained way, you can actually get very close to predicting verdict. Well, that, that's uh, like uh, the, the polling before an election, seeing what, uh, what, what one might do and what the outcome of the election might be. Uh, when we we talk exactly. about uh, the, the juries uh, and jury selection, I, to me it, it's almost a misnomer nomer in a way that you're really deselecting a jury. You get the first jurors in the box, and then you ask them questions and you try to see whether they're going to be for you or against you. And then uh, we have what's called a preemptive challenge. We have a number of preemptive challenges where we can th basically just ask a jury to a juror to leave for whatever reason we have. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I think I saw in your book that you recommend that one of the things to improve juries is to limit or get rid of preemptive challenges. Or did I catch that? Yeah, I think so. To either um, to limit them or, or to get rid of them. I think it's important to have a jury of your peers, and I think to 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 keep striking um, certain segments of the population just because you think they would be um, they may not favor you. Is, is is turning jurors into a representing sort of the dull middle middle. And so the, the extremes are often um, not represented even in a jury pool because poor people move too often, their dresses change, they don't get a summons. Rich people tend to ignore the summons. Um, some states, in fact, I think link their, um, whether or not somebody has shown up for jury duty with, with uh, a basic computer. If you're pulled over for traffic violation, the police might find that you have a record of ignoring jury summons and possibly be, uh, they could arrest you. So I think one thing that needs to be done is to make the jury pool much more representative of one's peers, which means different segments of society, different levels of education, income, different ethnicities, as many different demographic variables as you can plug in that matter in the community. Do you think there should be more jurors than, uh, like in Ohio, we have eight jurors in a civil case, 12 in a criminal case. Uh, if we're going to eliminate uh, preemptive challenges, uh, should we have more jurors uh, so that we sort of spread the wealth? You mean more jurors in a panel, like more than eight or more than 12? Or correct, correct. Or is that enough, even though we can't sort of weed them out? Yeah, I hadn't thought about that question. Um, I think at some point it makes deliberations ungain ungainly, unwieldy. I think probably those are good. I think 12 is a good number. Plus, I like its sort of history of you know, Anglo-Saxon value system. Right, right. The juries originated during the Magna Carta 900 years ago. Well, that, that system, as we're, we're talking about new technology and so forth. By the way, do you find that in talking to jurors afterwards, have... Uh, do the jurors go on social media and go online during the trials? Is that something they all do, or do they listen to the judge and stay away from that kind of thing? I think jurors <clears throat> seldom listen to the judge's instructions. I mean, they, I'm not sure they, all, they generally understand them, and if they do, that they obey them. Um, social media is really no different from the, from the judge admonishing jurors, don't, don't, look at any, don't read any news about this, you know, and don't listen to any news. This is just an era where people can directly uh, provide themselves with their own news. But the judge's instructions are still, don't listen to any outside evidence. Don't listen to anything about this case that hasn't been presented in trial. Well, I hope they, they go along with that. What, what kind of comments do you hear about the lawyers? Uh, I, I remember hearing some things from some jurors that uh, during the course of the trial, they form opinions about the lawyers and start picking on their idiosyncrasies sometimes. And... Uh, 
They definitely do that. Yeah, tell me about that. Does that actually sway a jury if they hate the lawyer uh, representing one side? They may rule against that lawyer. Actually, it's kind of the the reverse. In fact, we've uh, we've, we've noted this often and often tell lawyers about it. It's not the case that jurors um, are persuaded by the lawyer they like the most. They're often persuaded. They're generally persuaded by the lawyer who makes the the, the jurors work easiest, who can lay out the facts for them most clearly, who can explain engineering testimony or scientific testimony and in the clearest way so often um you know they'll say well i really like that one guy but i just couldn't understand him or sometimes and they often are not they're much harder i think on, on female attorneys than male attorneys oh why is so that they, they'll make more personal comments like she can afford to get a better haircut than that or you know i don't know why she wears those shoes they don't look comfortable to me yeah, amazing, and that uh, that kind of focus from jurors really perplexes lawyers as to, uh, you know, we're giving them all this juicy stuff, the, the real things. Uh, we, we have uh, about a, a minute to go, but real quick, do you think uh, jurors should or should not take notes? That always seems to be an issue. Well, I think they should. I think, and the judge's instructions ought to be very clear as to what their goal is. It's, it's very um, odd that judges' instructions are delivered at the end of the trial instead of at the beginning. It's like uh, enrolling in a course and not knowing what you're supposed to focus on until, uh, at the final, until the final exam, when the fact it would have been much better if the instructor could tell you at the outset, you know, this is what this course is about. These are the issues that matter, and this is where I want you to focus and concentrate. In really computerized courtrooms, uh, every juror has a little station so they can send a message to the judge and say they want to ask an additional question of the attorney. And so, but most, most trials still don't have, most courtrooms still don't have questions or note-taking. Wow. Well, uh, to me, uh, the courtroom is, is still the, the last option for resolving problems here. And uh, I think it's a good thing that we have the jury system. But uh, the name of the book is called The Jury Crisis, and it's by Drury Sherrod. And uh, Drew, thank you for joining us tonight. Thanks. I've enjoyed this. Thank you so much, and thank you for listening. We'll be back next week, same time, same station. So between now and then, have a great week. Good night. And I sat and watched the Zanzibar sunset Sat and drank my fresh mint tea With nothing to do until morning